Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, our guests went from Silicon Valley to making waves in D.C. as chief of staff to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's right, Shoykat Chakrabarti is here in the studio. He is back in Cali. We're going to talk to him about his time in the nation's capital and why he's back here at a new progressive think tank. But first, Guy. I think we have to talk about the images we've all been looking at all morning, the horrific images in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. And you were just moments ago with Speaker Nancy Pelosi at an event that she was doing uh, in San Francisco. What did she have to say? Yeah, quite a just sort of overwhelming last 12 to 24 hours. Um, so Pelosi was here to talk about what she says is bipartisan legislation to reform the Postal Service. But of course, when she opened it up for questions and said, does anyone have anything on the Postal Service? No, we don't. Um, But we did want to know, you know, her reaction. Um, She did not mince words. It was very supportive of of the moves Biden has made around sanctions. I asked her also about a letter that some 40 Congress members sent to the president, essentially saying that they would like to see Congress uh, be involved, you know, potentially take a vote depending on what actions America wants to take. Um, Pelosi was really clear that she feels like what the you know, what Biden has done so far is well within his power. But she said even if that stays the case, she would like to see potential legislation to sort of show unity in Mm. the United States. Um, And she had pretty sharp words for Putin. She said, I don't like to call people evil, but he's an evil man doing bad things. Right. Um, So, you know, I I think it's not surprising to see her really back up um, Biden. I think the other thing she got asked about, Guy, that's worth mentioning is gas prices and sort of what these sanctions could do, not just in Russia and Europe, but to the United States. Um, And she made the point that she seemed open to this idea of potentially a gas tax holiday or some kind of legislation to do that, but made the point that if Congress does that, there's no guarantee that oil companies pass on that savings to consumers. So she was like, if we're going to even talk about that, we need to figure out mechanisms to make sure that this is actually helping people at the pump. Um, But interesting, you know, I think in a a moment like this that it's it's sort of it struck me like, is it is it weird to be talking about gas prices while people's like mm. like families are fleeing? Um, but clearly both she, the president and everyone in D.C. is sort of trying to walk and chew gum at the same time on this. Um, take a strong stand with NATO allies, but also think about the sort of repercussions to, to 
folks. And, you know, probably not a mistake that Putin did this in a year for midterms in, in the United States. He likes to sow chaos wherever he can. Right. And you mentioned that letter is, you know, many progressive uh, Congress members, including Barbara Lee here in the Bay Area, basically, you know, saying showing support for sanctions, but then also saying, look, if this escalates and the president hinted, he doesn't think Putin's ambitions just end with Ukraine. If right. it gets into uh, NATO territory, the, you know, these Congress members definitely want to see the House involved uh, in weighing in on this. Let's talk about some stuff a little bit closer to home. There was a, you know, a poll released today by the Berkeley IGS looking at COVID policies in schools. This has been something, you know, top of mind for Governor Gavin Newsom. In fact, he even hinted that as soon as next week, there might be policies. Monday, right? We're Monday, talking about uh, an announcement around the future of masking. Although right, this, he didn't say that that means it'll happen. That right. Day. Just uh, just an update. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I do wonder if the, these poll number, numbers might inform this. Voters were asked, should California continue to require masks in school? 65 percent approval. And I think this comes as we've heard a lot of drumbeat. It seems like the loudest voice is saying it's, you know, it's time to maybe unmask that. And we've seen even our neighboring states like Oregon, other Democratic states like New Jersey move in that direction. But to me, these poll numbers, given all that, were a little surprising. I was blown away. 65 approved, 32 disapprove of masks in schools. This is a statewide requirement, though. So it's not as if Newsom lifted that. It would automatically mean that districts had to lift their mask mandates. I I would bet that he will do that because we're seeing such strong pushback. I know up in the foothills, there's a district that had to close because their teachers walked out over... the decision by the district to lift the mask requirement in violation of the state rules. It's all getting very complicated. Um, but kind of similar numbers to requiring vaccines, 64 approved, 32 percent approved for kids in schools. And to me, that just speaks to like California does not seem fully ready to throw off the masks yet. I mean, the press conference I was just at outside, everyone's wearing KN95s. Mm. I mean, it is not. I mean, that's San Francisco. But it, these numbers indicate that they're and, and they, we should say it's very partisan. Right. Right. Well, you know, and especially, yeah, and especially when you get to the vaccination question, I think on that, digging deeper into these numbers among parents, so asking all registered voters, should kids be required to get COVID-19 vaccinations? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Once, you know, once it goes through the full FDA approval, the margin is like 30 points. When it narrows down to just asking school age parents, now it's plus 13 kids should be vaccinated. And that question does not even bring in the personal belief exemption question, which is really what the legislature is going to take up this year. This idea should, you know, we remove any personal belief exemption for COVID-19 vaccines, you'd imagine that margin might narrow even further, which I think just signifies how potentially nasty that fight is going to get. The bill has not had a hearing yet. It probably will next month. But, you know, certainly expect a repeat of what we've seen. Right. And I do wonder, I think on vaccines, these numbers may be less squishy. I do wonder as Omicron recedes and people start sort of feeling more comfortable in their lives in general, not masking everywhere, if that could play into these numbers. But again, way more approval than I would have expected. All right. We are going to take a short break now. When we return, we will be joined by Shokat Chakrabarti. He is a leading progressive voice and former chief of staff to Congresswoman AOC. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to welcome Shoykat Chakrabarti. He has worked for Bernie Sanders, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Now he's back in the Bay working on big picture policy ideas as president of the think tank New Consensus. New Consensus. That's right. right. Shoykat, welcome to The Breakdown. In studio. Oh, thanks for having me. We're so happy to, to in, in person. person. In the studio, yeah. Yes. Um, well, we're like... We want to talk politics with you. Let's be honest. We sure. often get into bios, but I just I wanted to give our listeners a little bit of a prep on you, which is you grew up in Texas. I think you went to Harvard. Your first job was on Wall Street. You went into tech. And then suddenly you're working for like the biggest progressive star ever. I mean, I know it didn't go that quickly, but <laughs> what what pushed you into politics? You had, you know, an Ivy League education and training in a much more uh, lucrative field, let's say. Right. Yeah. A, a desire for self-flagellation, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. but no, it's uh, I, I was part of this generation that got dragged into not dragged into, but drawn into Silicon Valley Um thinking that that would be the way we would change the world, right? That was sort of the, the talk in early 2000s, uh, 2008, 2009. And, uh, and it was cool. Like, I'm not going to downplay it. It was pretty fun working in, at, in 2009 in Silicon Valley. I worked at a company called Stripe, and we were building fun stuff. But it was pretty clear that this is not this is there. There were problems in the world that were just too big for the tech sector to tackle just through some a tech-only mindset, you know? Mm-hmm. We, and just living in San Francisco, you, you sort of saw... Uh, this region with so much wealth, so much power coming into it. And yet there are these big problems in our backyards around homelessness. I mean, it's all become, everyone's acting like these are new problems in San Francisco now. But in 2009, it was still, uh, you know, we had great disparity. It was one of the most unequal cities in the country. Um, So I sort of got drawn into politics because it seemed like we have the big existential problems that we face as society, the big uh, challenges like climate change, uh, inequality, the kind of stagnation um, just won't be solved by tech. It, it has to be something that we democratically do as a country. And so your first stop was Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign yeah, for president, like cold right? call, though? Yeah, how did that come about? <laughs> uh, sort of, yeah. I, I just started um, volunteering for him as a programmer. That's why I knew what to do. Um, and, uh, I got drawn to him largely cause I, you know, I was a total political neophyte, right? So I didn't know what was going on, but he was at least talking about these big problems. He was talking about climate change. I mean, it, things have shifted so much since then, uh, in the 2016 campaign, Bernie Sanders had a climate change platform and Hillary Clinton didn't. That was basically where the debate was at. Right. And his climate change platform was, we'll do a carbon tax and get somewhere by 2050. Um, and, and so, uh, and he was also talking about inequality, right, which I, I think was, is and was back then uh, a huge problem. So I got drawn in. I started programming and um, eventually met up with one of the staffers uh, that was working on the campaign who happened to be like a friend of a friend of a friend. You know, everyone at the time, there's so many volunteers were all trying to like talk to anybody on staff. <laughs> Turned out there was like five people on staff. So that's why they couldn't get back to us. Um, but uh, but yeah, he, he got me onto the team. 
Um, and it was an amazing experience. We, we got on, I was on a team called the Distributed Organizing Team. We were responsible for trying to organize all the volunteers in all the states are not the early four states. Um, and it was about 10 of us, I think, when I joined. So that was super fun. We had to figure out ways to like, scale these organizing uh, principles that we came up with. And it's a yeah, big, long story there. <laughs> well, God, it strikes me that, you know, well, we'll talk about sort of the policy because it feels like in some ways we've come a long way from 2016. And in some ways, maybe we've gone backwards in your mind. But mm-hmm. on the tech side of things, like what... Did you all kind of pioneer in that campaign that lives on? And, and and is it more broad than just the progressive base? Are these things that you see other campaigns taking on as well? Um, yeah, no, I think there's there's a lot of stuff that, not a lot, but there, there are things that we did on that campaign that I have seen other campaigns replicate since then, both in the Bernie campaign and uh, on the AOC campaign, actually. Um, we a lot of text message based organizing started mm-hmm. in 2016, um, and I think the Bernie campaign actually started a lot of that. Um, and a lot of the, what I worked on were these tools that were kind of assisting organizers. You know, so I, you know, I, I didn't have an organizing background. I wasn't um, some great organizer going into it, but I, I went around to these barnstorms and organizing rallies with organizers, try to figure out where the pain points were, and try to build tools for. Um, essentially large groups of people across the internet to communicate and coordinate. And it was, it wasn't like it was building, you know, complete new tools. It was really stitching together lots of stuff that exists, right? Like things like Slack and Google Docs and stuff exist, but then trying to make it all work together. Did Slack exist? Slack uh, had, yeah, had just existed, (laughs) had just started existing uh, in 2016. Um, And, and I think the, it's less the specific tech that got made because all campaign tech kind of gets thrown out. You know, there's a couple of things from that campaign that has continued to exist. I made a a texting program called Spoke that a lot of campaigns have used, progressive and uh, moderate. Um, And it's open source. Move on uses it now. But uh, most of it was, I think, kind of campaign tactics that try to tie together tech with the big national volunteer base. You know, how do you organize people nationally um, to to do campaign uh, work? Great. So you're to blame for all the texts we get days before know, uh, an election. <laughs> oh, did you remember to vote for candidate XYZ? Okay, good. Noted. Um, how do you tell us, okay, where your work went from there? And then would it have been different if Clinton was president? Like, how, how did that shape kind of your next path after the Sanders campaign? Yeah, well, you know, right after the Sanders campaign, uh, before the general election, uh, around the time California came around, it was getting pretty clear that Sanders, you know, Bernie wasn't going to win. So there's a group of us on that team uh, that cra- wanted, we, you know, we felt like we had cracked something of a of a new paradigm in how to organize a big national campaign, you know, of raising a bunch of money to uh, fund a bunch of organizing to uh, create this big national movement. Um, and we thought, well, you know, can you recreate that for Congress? Because even if Hillary wins, uh, she's going to have this this recalcitrant Republican opposition. We had, you know, at that point, we had just gone through uh, eight years of Obama facing off with uh, Republicans, right? And so we started a campaign. It was at the time called Brand New Congress that was trying to recruit a slate of 400 candidates. Uh, we're going to run them as a big national uh, presidential style campaign. And part of the thinking here was it's really, really hard to get working class everyday leaders to run for office, you know, because you have to do this 
thing where you're, you have to be this narcissist. You have to like have everybody care about you and it's all about me, me, me. But like, what if we made it a team of people? That's what people don't understand. Like all politicians have to be egoists and spend a lot of time raising money. And it's very uncomfortable, right? Right. Like, and when when you have non-narcissistic people run, which we had a lot of people like that, it's it's just, it's really weird. You know, they just hate it. Um, But I, we felt we could get a team of people to get interested because a lot of these people who are good leaders, they like to be part of a team and, and, and be part of something that's actually going to create a solution. So so how many of them won? Um, well, technically four, but really just one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we you know, we, we recruited um, about 12 people. Okay. Out of the 400 yeah. was the original goal. 12 actually got 12. came to the table. Yeah. And, and out of those 12, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the only one that won. We eventually had to shift around. The group turned into some Justice Democrats is what and being called. And uh, we started endorsing some people um, who started running on their own largely because Trump won. You know, there's like this, that was the big event when Trump won in 2016. Honestly, a bunch of people we talked to that summer before 2016 about running, uh, they were like, no way, you know, not in a million years. And then Trump won and they started thinking about maybe it's time uh, I should step in, you know, and do something. So people like uh, Ayanna Presley, Alan Homar, and um, Rashida Tlaib uh, were all uh, uh, people that we endorsed through Justice Democrats. um, And that, you know, became the squad eventually. So AOC wins. You follow her into the House. You become her chief of staff uh, in Congress. Was that a tough transition? I mean, you've been really working on kind of the organizing Grassroots, side of politics. Yeah. Suddenly you're, you know, staffing in, in Capitol Hill. Like, what was that? Ostensibly was it- wearing a suit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. The suit part was the hardest, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, fun fact, we stopped wearing suits in our office and the other offices didn't love that. But uh, the it was it wasn't actually as hard as I thought it would be. And I think that was because we had such great alignment on what we we're trying to accomplish, um, not just on the staff, but from AOC. You know, she knew what her role was going into Congress to a large extent. You know, and she and she uh, um, we knew that, you know, with four new members of Congress, we're not going to get massive legislation passed. You don't have real power in Congress politically. But the thing we had um, was a lot of media attention and the ability to change the conversation. And so we went in with that goal. And to some extent, that meant not doing a lot of things that offices usually do. Um, And so there wasn't really, um, I'd say there weren't too many uh, existing examples that we could learn from. There there are a few. You know, we actually talked a lot with... uh, um, Gutierrez's staff, because he was kind of a, a candidate like that, who, who went to Congress to try to make a change on on uh, uh, policies relating to Puerto Rico. Um, but it was, uh, yeah. So it was it was a chaotic ride. But I don't know if it could have been any other way. <laughs> yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with Shoykat Chakrabarti of the Think Tank New Consensus, where he's developing progressive policy. And deepening his toe into local politics a little. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's stay on the Hill for a minute. Because, like, if you're in any way a household name, it might be because of your Twitter feed. Um, And you got into a spat with House leadership over uh, basically going after a member for some border security votes that that you guys thought was, like, you know, not in line with the Democratic Party's principles. We don't have to get into all the details of that. But I'm just curious, like, in hindsight, do you feel... Any regrets? Do you feel like justified in the way you handled that? Um, as you sort of alluded to, it's like it's a different world coming into. Yeah, you know, it was. Um, you know, I think it got it. Like it wasn't something that I wanted to have 
turn into a big thing, right? It got a, it got bigger than um, I wanted to, and then and I think it was because of the moment we were in. Like there was already the story that um, people want to write about the friction between the squad right. and Nancy Pelosi, and I think um, is that overblown? Do you think? Was it? Yeah, it was overblown. I do think it was overblown. You know, like I think there were I think there were very legitimate um, real. Uh, disagreements right. on policy, right, and on what we should be doing, and and maybe even on approach, right? An approach, yeah. And and there was the the reason that whole thing happened. I don't want to get too much in the details, but there was basically a vote where Nancy Pelosi uh, promised that things would go one way, and it didn't, you know. And uh, and and so people were understandably very upset. Um, and this was at a time when Trump is caging kids at the border, you know. And um, and I thought that was it was the right fight to try to push for. Um, to do the right thing at the border, yeah. right? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, like the actual thing that turned into this like gossip rag style reporting. <laughs> totally. Um, I mean, I mean, literally fought going like five reply tweets deep into my <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> and I'm like, come on. But guys. I mean, it must have been crazy. Like three years before that, you were not in politics in any way, shape, or form. Now you tweet something and it's like a national headline. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but. Uh, you know, like if that, you had to go to therapy, like is this, like, <laughs> at, like probably should have. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was it was stressful, but it was at that point it was like honestly that was not the most stressful thing that even occurred. Right. You know, like uh, the whole process of uh, watching AOC go from um, someone who was you know working at a restaurant and. Uh, trying to make ends meet a few months ago to like literally overnight, she's doing eight shows on the front page of the New York Times. I felt more stressed for her because mm. it was my job to keep her from burning out and dying. Right. Mm. <laughs> like that, that was. And so that that was to me the, the hardest part of the whole job was trying to keep her um, able to handle and manage all this incoming without it all being on her shoulders. Do you, uh, and we want to move on to like more, but I, I'm just curious, like, do you have any different opinions, respect, point of view for somebody like the speaker and, and the role she has to play in the sort of chess she has to play after being there? Um, because it is a diverse caucus and it mm. is, a, I think, whatever you think of Nancy Pelosi, a hard job. Yeah, it is a hard job. Um, yeah, I don't think I ever didn't have respect for the role she has to play. But I think the role we had to play was to to be a part of that caucus and push a certain position, right? Um, and which I, I thought was a correct position, right? And, and try to build support around that. Um, but yeah, I mean, she has she has a hard job. She has to corral the caucus, but that's her job. Oh yeah, like nobody feels bad for right. Right. <laughs> So you left uh, the house in in 2019. You're now back uh, in San Francisco working at New Consensus. Tell us about the work you're doing there. Sure. So New Consensus is a think tank that actually started around the same time just as Democrats did. And we really uh, wanted to focus on building up the ideas around something like the Green New Deal. We weren't calling it that at the time. But it's sort of what was motivating to us was we felt like there was there was a bit of a lack of infrastructure around um, ideas for progressivism that actually build up the supply of the things we need to be progressive, you know? So a lot of what the Green New Deal was about um, was how do we uh, build the things necessary to create the clean energy world, right? You know, what one way I've started, I've heard someone put it at one point was we have, you know, a million machines in the world that emit fossil fuels. We have to build 
a million machines that replace those, right? Um, and that just didn't exist. I mean, some, now I think it's become more uh, popular. People talk about industrial policy. People are talking about supply side progressivism, uh, but that that wasn't there in 2018. So that was really new consensus's focus was how do we talk about this stuff? How do we build up? Um, you know, how do we actually build us plans and solutions for uh, making a green energy transition? And at the time we started, it wasn't just focused on green energy transition. It was really fo- you know, focused on something like how do you do a response to pandemic? And we did some work around uh, you know, pandemic supply response stuff as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we've, uh, we've been uh, – uh, we worked on the Green New Deal uh, plan when that first came out. And since then, we've been focused a lot, some on COVID-19 response work, especially at the very beginning, you know, what should our, re- what should our response be to – uh, keep the economy going and and try to tackle COVID. Um, and uh, since then, we've been kind of working on a longer term project that's trying to be, I'd say, the the playbook, like the emergency playbook. If we get a president into office who wants to do whatever's possible and has a political capital to do whatever's possible to uh, solve climate change, and they say, give me the playbook to do it, what is that, right? And that's what we're working on right now. Interesting. Is that given up on the the hopes that this president would, would take that action? Um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think we're, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of hope and I was quite hopeful at the very beginning, but I think the window of opportunity has narrowed significantly. Um, I don't know what at this point Biden can do. We engaged a bit, you know, trying to push certain um, policies and the, and the um, Build Back Better bill. But, I mean, it really seems a little dead in the water right now. I want to get your take more broadly on politics. We're in a midterm year. There's a lot of folks who think that, you know, the Democrats are not in a great position to to keep control of Congress. Um, And I think there's a lot of bad takes on like progressive politics and things. But I don't think you can deny that there is some backlash happening in a state like California. You know, we talk about something like criminal justice reform, right? Like this is and, and, and the right has done a really good job of taking, you know, a defund the police call and sort of morphing it into, I think, broader anxiety about some of these issues. I mean, do progressives just need to get better at comms? And like, how do you kind of square those things, you know, sort of leaving aside the bad takes? But like, like you mentioned, I mean, San Francisco is getting a lot of attention, but it's not just from outside of the city. It's not just from Fox News. There are Mm -hmm. people here that are really frustrated. Yeah. I mean, putting San Francisco aside for a second, I think it's a, a terrible failure on democratic messaging and leadership to allow that to happen, you know, to allow right wingers to take um, something like defund the police or whatever. You know, people campaign on what's popular in their districts. AOC campaigns on immigration rights in her district because her district's like, you know, 60 percent immigrant. <laughs> it's it's a very immigrant district. And I think it's ridiculous to say, oh, so and so in West Virginia is going to be affected by a campaign someone's running in New York. I mean, Republicans, mainstream Republicans uh, support incredibly unpopular stuff, way more unpopular than defund the police. People, you know, I think Josh Hawley, uh, uh, I don't know if Josh Hawley specifically, but there are, there are people in Missouri, um, Congress people who support, um, you know, uh, the the right to have, support having no abortions, even in the case of incest or rape, um, at all time. And that's something that they would vote to support, right? And why are we not able to tie all Republicans to that, right? Why is it always that 
if a progressive says something somewhere in the woods and nobody hears it, uh, then a moderate will be affected, you know, over in uh, South Carolina. I think it's ridiculous. And and I think in San Francisco, I think there's a separate um, issue of there of there are uh, – I think in San Francisco, there was an, a competence issue with the Board of Education. That's my opinion on it, you know. And, of course, the right wing is going to take any failing anywhere to their advantage. But that doesn't mean that... But the left, I mean, the defenders of the school board say that this is sort of an extension of critical race theory backlash and that sort of thing. Like, so it's like right. the parochial fights uh, get complicated. Yeah, I mean, I well, I know you've been kind of dipping your toes into local politics a little. You're working with Bilal Mahmood, who is running for state assembly yeah. uh, here in San Francisco. Are there areas you think someone like a state legislator, a state assembly member, has a unique opportunity to kind of move the ball forward on some of the stuff that you're working on with more of a national lens? Um yeah, no, I, I think I think there are areas where a city like San Francisco or a state like California, especially a state like California, is a you know massive uh, economy. It's a huge state, has a lot of uh, power, uh, can serve as both models uh, and can lead the way on things like climate change. And really, the thing I'm interested in for a place like California is how do you serve as a model for what competent democratic leadership can look like. Because we're a democratic state, you know, we're so it's so lucky that we're aligned on basic things like climate change is real. We want there to be equality and equity and everyone to have a good life. You know, we don't have to fight these national fights that seem almost absurd. Um, And yet. And yet we do. And yet we do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yet. (laughs) Right. Like and, and so why, you know, why are we not able to the part that I'm interested in and in is in a state like California. Why can't we build housing and make it affordable, right? Like, what's stopping us, right? All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Shrikat Chakrabarty, thank you so much. And I'll leave that question with our listeners. (laughs) That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy's our producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. I'm Maurice Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good one. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.